Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, the podcast where I usually try to shoehorn in as many jokes as possible. But now I'm contractually obliged to be slightly uncomfortable about how bleak this story is. And all of that. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and with me today is Miriam Rochek. Miriam, how are you doing? Doing okay. Um, excited to see how, how bleak this gets. And where you can shoehorn jokes in. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and Sophie is our producer. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Margaret. Hello. Oh, I already said hi. Ian is our editor, and I can say hi to Ian, but Ian can't say hi back unless he splices in his own audio. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. And on Woman wrote our theme song. And so like every second episode, here's where I say, hey, go back and listen to the first episode. They're basically all two-parters. And this is part two. Today, we are talking about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And last episode, we talked about the Bund and the situation in general at the start of the invasion of Poland. But now let's talk about the ghetto and the aforementioned uprising that happens in the ghetto. Thus the name Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Okay, so... Jewish refugees, they flood into Warsaw after the German occupation. They're hoping for safety and anonymity in numbers. The Jewish population of the city went from 350,000 people to 500,000 people, which is in a city of like 1.3 million people. So a solid quarter of the population, even before uh, the influx of refugees, were Jewish. And even before the war, it was the single largest collections of Jews, at least in Europe. I think only New York City is in the is in the running for largest Jewish cities in the world at the time. It was the the political center of the European Jewish world. And not everyone who came after the invasion was a refugee either. A good number of Jewish and Polish fighters smuggled themselves into the city because that's where they were needed. The Jewish population couldn't handle the influx. Not really. Apartments were crammed. Food was short. People died every day. Jews were fired from almost every job, uh, except for like the most manual of manual labor. Germans prohibited making clothes and shoes and shit for the Jewish market. So people started making shoes with wooden soles and like fabric uppers. Soap and candles were forbidden. 
illegal factories were set up everywhere and whole swaths of the Jewish population entered into the underground economy by necessity. And this is this is before the ghetto itself is created. Right. This is just this is just wartime shit. Yeah. Um, wartime anti-Semitism. But yeah. And so there's shortages of basically everything. And the Jews overall are not turning on each other. They did what disaster studies have shown time and time again that communities can do and often do during crisis. They set up elaborate and organic systems of mutual aid. And this isn't like a guarantee. Go ahead. No, that that like is what people do. Um, everyone should read A Paradise Built in Hell. Yeah. Re- Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca Solnit. Yes. And so this wasn't a totally guaranteed thing in this particular situation because things are get real fucking dire. And so it took active work by the various political organizations to keep people cohesive and mutually supportive, which is maybe the single most important and impactful resistance they offered up because no one knew how long this shit was going to go on, right? Right. Um, and I like the guns and the dead Nazis part of this story like an awful lot. <laughs> who doesn't? But we, yeah, I mean, like everyone loves that. I can't imagine anyone who has a problem with that. We privilege violent resistance, sometimes slightly too much in history, kind of like you were talking about. And these mutual aid groups, they set up orphanages and clinics and soup kitchens. They literally invented a new kind of lamp that burns calcium carbide, like mixed with water or something. I do not understand this chemically. Look, Um, I don't know how lamps work. I just know that Comrade Bernard would take a dude out with that thing. Absolutely. However it works. Absolutely. And (laughs) they're like, lamps, We we see the attraction of lamps. I, I tried to look, I tried to figure out what calcium carbide was being used for at the time, why they could access it, but not these other things. And I, I couldn't figure it out. The The Boond had soup kitchens. The Zionists had their kitchens. The Orthodox had their kitchens. And the Pual Zionists had theirs. Pual Zionism is basically Marxist Zionism. They split from the Boond when the Boond was like, eh, we're good. We don't, we don't need Zionism. The Boond, they set up the Socialist Red Cross. They provide medical care and hide fugitives, which is cooler than just providing medical care rules. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But if you can tie it together with also hiding fugitives, that's just bonus. I mean, doing anything plus hiding fugitives, really. Like you could be selling ice cream and hiding fugitives, whatever. Like still cooler than just selling ice cream. I think there comes a point in history for uh, all over, like again and again and again, there comes a point in history where you're, you're sort of morally obliged to do everything plus hide fugitives, you know? Exactly. Like, I'm a dog walker and I hide fugitives. Like, great. Uh, don't tell me that. Stop. Why did you tell me that? I'm a person who doesn't talk about hiding fugitives on Twitter or in public. And also I hide fugitives, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's the vibe you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they also set up illegal schools for kids. The No one was supposed to be teaching Jews, but they did it anyway, of course. So you could also be an illegal school teacher, which also rules. And the Boond, in addition to setting up relief organizations, they also immediately set up illegal trade unions because they rule and wanted to do cool shit. And we're like, well, we got to set up trade unions. This underground organization had a cell structure where each person only knew five to ten others within their own cell that you know would report up the little hierarchy tree of cell structure revolution stuff to prevent infiltration and torture from bringing the whole thing down because if one person gets caught, they can only rat out their cell effectively um, and their handler, the cell's handler. They make contact with the Polish resistance as well, and they rely on contacts that they've made during their decades of political organizing. One of their contacts is a Polish socialist leader, Anton Zanowski, 
And he survived German occupation only to be immediately arrested and killed by the Soviets after liberation. All right, we have made it six <laughs> minutes in. Margaret's coming for the Soviets. You do not disappoint. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'll be here all day. The Bund even had a printing press. Of course, the Nazis confiscated all the Jewish-owned presses, leaving only one for the Judenrat, uh, the collaborationist organization. I can't even say collaborationist. That's how much I hate it. But some of the Bundists, they're thinking ahead, and they've already hidden two mimeograph machines well ahead of time. Nice. Yeah, no, they were prepared. Yeah, Two prepper. mimeograph machines. I mean, you need backup. The preppers, you should take note. Like, maybe, a, I don't know, what a, maybe a photocopier or a printer these days. But. I mean, it, it's something to think about, right? Like, how are you going to, dis- how are you going to make zines? Like, how are you yeah. going to distribute information? Yeah, which absolutely is hand? necessary. Yeah. And so the, the printers and distributors uh, don't really know each other in order to, so neither could rat the other out. And most of the distributors of the illegal papers that they set up are women because when they're stopped in the street, they're stopped in the street less often by random press gangs because more men are being pressed into work. And Bernard Goldstein helps edit a semi-monthly paper that they just called Bulletin to avoid it being too obviously attached to the boond so that it wouldn't be repressed. Um uh, Once the Gestapo figured out that it was called Bulletin, they changed its name to The Call and later Storm, which honestly seems like a way to track the escalation of events that happened. I was just thinking it really like just ramps up as you go. Yeah. But, you know, points to them because like at that time, people naming any kind of leftist journal like physically could not call it, you know, the worker's friend or like the banner of socialism or like the red flag. <laughs> like it was it was a huge effort on their part, I'm sure. Oh, to yeah. Name no, it as totally. Generically as they did. And like, good yeah. job, guys. That meeting must have been awful. Everyone's sitting there tense as hell being like, but why can't we call it the workers bulletin? <laughs> everyone's a worker. No, be quiet. It's just the bulletin. But everyone's a worker, but they don't know that. With the silent worker. Yeah, totally. The worker is silent, but not silent. This is how we have a voice. Okay, anyway. So (laughs) they fund it all with this really interesting money laundering scheme. Because everyone in Poland, Jewish and Polish, they're trying to get all their money the fuck out of the country, right? Because they're occupied. And the Boone has supporters all over the world because internationalism fucking rules. And especially in New York City at this particular point. So some Polish person would give the Boond money. And then the Boond would tell their comrades in the U.S., okay, now give the same amount of money to a person designated by the funder. So basically, like, you know, that, that way the, the Boond in the U.S. donates to the Boond in Poland, and the person in Poland gets to get their money the fuck out of the country to their family abroad. So the, the money doesn't actually change hands to somebody in the U.S. There's just the, the boond in the U.S. is just paying the money out. Yeah. So and, like, oh, okay. So like John wants to give money to his brother, James, who's in New York City, but he can't get his money out of the country. So he gives money to the boond and then the boond donates money to, I already forgot which name I used, but the guy in New York. Okay. So then the New York boond gives the money to, to James. Right. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. No, it took me a while. I was like trying to figure out how to write this out because I like I had to read the paragraph like four times, but it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. And so no money actually crosses the border. Correct. But because the Bund is in both places. Yeah. Um, the, the money given to the Bund in Poland counts as far as the Bund in New York is concerned. Yeah. 
because love it. In the end, it's like the Bund in the U.S. is giving money to uh, yeah. the Bund in Poland. Because borders are fake. Yeah. And probably the ones in New York were like, but couldn't it be called the Workers' Bulletin? Like, <laughs> we're financing it. What if it was called a worker revolt paper? Yeah. What about, like, the star of socialism workers' call to arms? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so the people's star of socialism works. Uh, uh-huh, totally. Yeah. Um, They'll take that one back. They'll workshop it a little more. Yeah. 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 It could be longer. And then finally, at some point, someone just is like, I already printed it. It's called Bulletin. <laughs> so I don't know if you knew this, but Nazis hate books. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they like some books, but overall, there's not like a big two fan. books. Yeah. They're the weird old action novels that, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote them all. So, and the Nazis are coming for the books. So the Jews tunnel secretly into their own library, friend of the pod tunneling. (laughs) And they smuggle books out of their own library, like among sacks of potatoes, friend of the pod potatoes and shit like that. Uh, The collaboration we've all been waiting for. This is it. The ultimate team up. Right. Tunnels and potatoes. I know. And then they set up libraries everywhere across the, the ghetto with all of the, the saved books. I love that. And, and, and I love a heist. So breaking right. into your own library, also very good. Right. The Nazis are really into collective punishment, not just for the Jews, but for all of the Polish occupied territory. So like they find a Polish intellectual with a radio and then they just round up hundreds of Jewish and Polish intellectuals and shoot them in the streets. A German officer gets killed or some railways are sabotaged. Entire villages are destroyed. Another time in April 1940, an anti-Semite attacks an elderly Jew. And so a younger Jew beats the shit out of the anti-Semite, like you do. And police arrest and kill the younger Jew. And then this whole pogrom starts. And the community defense orgs, they want to do something about it. But they also don't want to just make everything worse. There's all this collective punishment happening. And they're like, these are the tense meetings. They're probably a little less tense than what do we name the paper, but these are tense meetings. And they decide upon that age-old compromise. They will beat the shit out of the pogromists, but they'll use iron pipes and brass knuckles and leave the knives and guns at home. A kinder, gentler approach. To be fair, they don't have a lot of guns. This comes up as a problem in the near future. But so... It starts off in the Jewish quarter. Even before there's a formal ghetto, there was racial segregation in the city. All the Jewish workers crewed up and they and fought off the pogromists. And this spreads across the whole city. Non-Jewish socialists joined the, the Jewish side and fighting runs until the 8 p.m. curfew and everyone goes home <laughs> and then starts up again in the morning in a, a citywide brawl. You look that, like you want so to say the, something. I'm just, I'm just thinking like that. I don't, I don't think that's like what the curfew is intended to do is to like just make sure all the brawlers go home and get a good night's rest before they come back out and continue brawling. Yeah, I mean, probably I from the it, Nazi though. point of view, they're like, ah, oh, look, the fucking Poles are fighting the Jews. Who fucking cares, you know? But I'm fully on the side of the people who are fighting the pogromists at sure. any time. Going home for curfew, like, caught me off guard that that was the move. But it sounds like if both sides go home and you just come back in the morning and, like, they're still there to fight, okay, it works yeah. out. And you've had a good night's sleep, which is important. Yeah. And this goes on for, I think, three days. And the weirdest thing about this, it works. There's no collective punishment response 
maybe because it had been so widespread. And tons of new people show up to the boon being like, sign me up, please. Glad someone's doing something. And the Polish resistance starts looking a bit more seriously at anti-Semitism. They're still not great, right? But they like, they have their like moments where they start being like, okay, like maybe we should care about this. Because in this case, uh, democratic parts of the Polish resistance, there's all kinds of different parts of it. The democratic parties within it are like, oh, anti-Semitism is a Nazi thing and we don't like Nazis. I get the impression that the right wing was still like, eh, whatever. And because of the actions of the Jews who'd refused to build the ghetto for the Nazis, the segregation in the city happens somewhat more slowly and not nearly so fast as the Nazis would have preferred. And in the end, this delay didn't necessarily wind up saving all that many people, but it it certainly could have, right? That's the thing about war. That's the thing that like really kept hitting me as I was reading this, like and, and researching this and, and also talking with what you were talking about at the end of last episode. Like, you don't know what the fuck is going to happen, right? Like, if you delay really bad shit for a month in the middle of World War II, like, that could just as easily have saved everybody, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, enough small delays and enough, like, yeah. small things can can mean a lot. Yeah. One neighborhood at a time, though, the Nazis start kicking the Jews out of their houses and stealing all their shit. In October 1940, more than a year after the occupation, they announced the ghetto, uh, which the Judenrat had helped organize in the end, helping build the wall and all that shit. All the Jews had to move in. All non-Jews had to move out. 150,000 Jews move into the ghetto. 80,000 non-Jews move out over the course of two weeks. This is not a sad thing for the non-Jews because they all get to go occupy the much nicer apartments that they're moving into because this is... Not entirely, but a lot of this is the wealthier Jews being moved into the ghetto. And the mutual aid groups spring into action and they help people move, but they also guard people's possessions that are like strewn about on the street during the course of the move. And the Bund is roaming the streets with tea and bread, like making sure everyone has what they need. Aww. Um, in the newly established ghetto, the rule is that every room has to have at least four occupants, but the average was nine. And pretty much all the public buildings were living quarters as well. Typhus, typhoid, and dysentery ran rampant. No medicine was allowed in. Six to 7,000 people died every fucking month in the ghetto. That's more than 1% of the population dying of disease every fucking month. Um, disease and starvation. And to the Nazis, the Jew- Jewish is a race to a Nazi. Right. So this also means that there's several thousand Catholics with some vague Jewish heritage who are imprisoned in the ghetto. Um, a lot of whom start off anti-Jewish and a lot of whom end up fighting alongside everyone else uh, because the fuck else are you going to do? Jews were forbidden from speaking Polish in the city. So I guess this means that the the people who didn't speak Yiddish or Hebrew like literally couldn't talk in public legally. I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not trying to woe is well, whatever I am trying to woe is them. It's a fucking nightmare for everyone because being Catholic doesn't save you if you're... Oh, right. So they, these were people who who had grown up speaking exclusively Polish and then yeah. got classified as Jewish, right? Yeah. Who yeah. Weren't, weren't even culturally Jewish would have like, would just be like generationally Catholic. There's also people, of course, who converted uh, away from Judaism who were caught up by it being a race thing. But a lot of the, a lot of these families were like, what do you mean? You know, um, like, yeah. I don't know, I was Jewish or whatever whole thing is surrounded by a 10-foot wall with barbed wire and anyone leaving was shot on sight. That's not a nice thing. No, but you said it in a cheerful voice, so oh, right. that helped. That's right, yeah. 
The whole thing was clearly intended as a death camp. The Nazis were like, oh, great, we'll put all the Jews here and then they'll just die. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They'll be dead. Disease and starvation was supposed to do in the whole population, but folks just wouldn't die. I mean, okay, a lot of them died, right? But not like the Nazis hoped. People, especially children, smuggled food in through cracks in the wall, thrown over the wall. They would hide food on janitors every which way they could. could. Live cows were driven over the wall on portable ramps. People would roll up portable <laughs> ramps this wall, which I'm sure you had to do fast, right? Yeah, I just I did not expect live cow smuggling to. Uh... I know, I know. And of all the animals one could smuggle, I think cows would be like near the bottom yeah, of the list. No, just throw chickens over or whatever. Yeah, like yeah, uh, trebuchet. The okay, anyway. <laughs> yeah, as is, as in the documentary Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> and the whole Monty Python and the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, they yeah. they trebuchet a cow in that movie, right? I'm not. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, maybe it's a catapult. I don't remember. Extra ration trucks get bribed through the checkpoints. There's a lot of bribery is how a lot of this gets done, right? Uh, at one point, someone in a building on the outside of the ghetto, like literally would lower pipes down from a window and just pour milk into the, <laughs> like people would like line up with buckets, I guess, and then just pour milk through the, um, through the, through the pipe. Food would get packed into coffins and smuggled back into the ghetto by undertakers who took bodies out of the, took bodies out for burial at a nearby wow. cemetery. Um, and every single person involved, the cow smuggler, the pipe person, whatever, every person involved on both sides is facing instant death for doing this. But what the fuck else are you going to do, you know? And 2,000 Jewish men between the ages of 30 and 35 served in the Jewish police force, which was run by a violently anti-Semitic Jew. And I'm not just calling him that because he's a fucking Nazi cop. But before the invasion, he'd been part of an anti-Jewish political group. There's always there's always a few. You got your your fucking Ben Shapiro's everywhere. Yeah. So he's he's fucking mad that he got thrown in the ghetto, too. So he becomes the head of the cops. Yeah. There's all these Jews here. Gross. Yeah, I know. I spent my whole life organizing against myself and the Jewish cops help the Nazis every step of the way. They guide Nazis through the ghetto on their mission to find and kill people. They do it all. There was even cops or cops. Yep. There was even Jewish secret police. A couple hundred that were called Thirteeners, named after the address of their headquarters, who were working directly with the Gestapo to stop smuggling and crack down on political radicals. Hate it so much. Yeah. Oh, God. The cops and the secret police and the Jews who literally worked with the Gestapo and collaborationist merchants and all that shit, they lived in the ghetto too, but they lived a very different life They for a, a little while. Yeah, this didn't work out for them long term. It it did not, correct. They but for a little while they hung out at cafes and ate their fill and ignored curfew and lived privileged lives while destroying everyone else. Okay. And then the Nazis set up factories for their war machine and forced the Jews to work building parts of the bunkers and other shit, like brush factories and stuff for the war effort. The workers were paid, which is actually kind of in an awful way, sort of makes everything worse because you get this divide and conquer strategy happening constantly in the Warsaw Ghetto. And, and the divide and conquer, right, it's, it was within Jews, but it's obviously also within the broader population. Uh, the rations available to Jews was less than 200 calories a day. The rations available to Poles was less than 700 calories a day, which is like way better, right? That's like three and a half times more food. Yeah. But those are both those are both starvation diets. Yeah, about 1,200 calories is what you need to, the average person, everybody's different, to not die. You need about 1,200 calories yeah. a day. Um, 
So 700. Wow, you sure are doing great there, buddy, under occupation. German occupiers got around 2,600 calories a day. In the face of all this, the bone turns its attention to one task above all others. Get some fucking guns. And Reasonable. Yeah. They, they build bridges with the Polish home, home Army, which is the resistance movement, uh, but most especially, more, they're building bridges to get some fucking guns. And they're being pretty careful not to bring repression down on themselves and not get too violent too quick uh, because the the Nazis love of collective punishment. But at one point, one of their printers gets found and tortured and murdered. Uh, he didn't give up any names despite weeks of torture, which good on him. Um, and the Bund comes across a, a Jewish cop who's looting his corpse in the street. So the Bund, to quote Bernard Goldstein, dealt with the Jewish policeman appropriately. I love some evocative understatement. Yeah. <laughs> Probably didn't like set him up with a nice apartment or something. Yeah, that I have some I have some ideas of what that could mean. Yeah. But you know who else will set you up will deal with you set you up in nice apartments? Um uh help me out here. I'm drowning. Um no, nah, this is a this this is a trap of your own devising. I can't get you out of this one. I don't think there's a way out of this one, Margaret. Welcome to some advertisers. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to this sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And we are back. We are back and we are talking about, well, you know what we were talking about. You didn't come start the show during the ad you break. You probably skipped forward 30 seconds. Yeah. And then another yeah. 30 seconds. And now we're here. 
And then yeah. you had to skip back 30 seconds because you overshot. That's Yeah. Which, fun fact, is part of the reason that there's a music bumper between the ads so that you yeah, can it's catch really helpful. where it comes in. Yeah. It's intentional. Yeah. So. Don't tell the advertisers. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, don't don't worry. Um, potatoes don't listen to the show. They don't have ears. They only have eyes. <laughs> eh? Eh? You said you weren't going to make any jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret. How I, dare you be funny? Live. Never trusting you again. Fair enough. Okay. So. They're being pretty careful not to bring any repression. Nope, I can't do it like that either. That doesn't work. Okay, so. <laughs> You're funny again, unintentionally. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. In 1942. Oh, my God. Now I just really set myself up because now everything's going to get worse. In 1942. Oh, I, you you uh, just have to embrace it. Like, yeah. Talking about horrible things doesn't, you know, like it's, yeah. that's yeah. you know, you just got to power through it. Yeah. In 1942, the Nazis start importing more and more people into the ghetto, including well-to-do German Jews who get to hang out at the cafes with the cops and the collaborationists and shit. Uh, some of these Jews who got imported actually had sons serving in the Nazi army, so they were rooting for the Nazis the whole time because they wanted their sons to do well. In the end, everyone at these cafes suffers the same fate as everyone else. Class or collaboration alone is not enough to save you. And then also during this time, uh, Roma folks start being imported into the ghetto as well as Czech Jews. And by summer of 1942, the Nazis are just walking around shooting people for fun in the streets. And in July, the deportations begin. 10,000 people a day are told that they're off to work elsewhere. The, the Bund and others know that what's up. They're like, there's no fucking way that this is what's happening. And they want people to, to hide or fight. They released a statement, printed out, posted everywhere they could. Jews, you are being deceived. Do not believe that you are being sent to work and nothing else. Actually, you are being led to your deaths. This is the devilish continuation of the campaign of extermination which has already been carried out in the provinces. Do not let them take you to your death voluntarily. Resist. Fight tooth and nail. Do not report to the Umschlagplatz. Fight for your lives. It's here that maybe it's worth pointing out that hiding is at least as valid as tactic as fighting, right? Like, they want people to hide or fight, whatever. Like. People get so hung up on fighting. I know I keep hitting that point because like choosing where you die is cool as shit. But if their purpose is to kill you, not dying is a really good way to... Not dying is great. Yeah. If at all possible. Yeah. You want to see different history. You got to live. Not dying is like one of my top favorite things to do. I do it every day. You get that little yeah. death of sleep, but that one's okay. Yeah. Every day so far. Yeah. No dying. Yeah. I hope that we can both continue. Well. It's, uh... Okay, so so Adam Chernikov, he's the head of the Judenrat. And I've been leaving him out of the story for the most part because fuck them, fuck the Judenrat. But yeah. he didn't, he, he's not like the cops in terms of his motivations at the very least. He didn't go at it with the goal of collaborating. He didn't want to betray his people. He was trying to use compromise as the way to help people survive and not die, right? I think there were like, a substantial number of people who thought like, oh, well, if I'm in this position, I can like make things less terrible, yeah. which like that's a a very self-serving belief you have uh, given yourself there. But it's not totally crazy. You know, it's not like totally. a it's not, you know, it is it is understandable why somebody might think that that's reasonable, like yeah. that that might work. I mean, people still join the fucking police 
force now thinking maybe I'll change it from the inside. Right. And I, I think that there's like, I mean, the cops who joined, uh, I, I, have, I have nothing nice to say about them, right? Except for the ones who later recant. And even right. then, you know, but uh, this guy made the a call that I've never been in a situation where I have to make a call like that. It doesn't look great. And after the after the mass deportations begin, he, he knows the truth of what compromise with fascism, where it was taking everyone. So he went kind of one last time. He goes and he pled for the orphans. There were orphanages all over the ghetto for some odd reason. A lot of people without parents. And he asked that the children not be deported. And they refused him. And he went home and he wrote a letter to his wife and he ate cyanide. And his letter to his wife said, they demand me to kill children of my nation with my own hands. I have nothing to do but die. After his death, members of the Judenrat were forced to physically assist the Jewish police in rounding up people for deportation or face deportation themselves. And at the same time, the cops get told, you have to catch seven people every day or you will be deported yourself. Janusz Korjak, uh, this will be the hardest story to tell in the whole thing. Hey, you got this. He's a pediatrician and a famous children's book author who ran one of the orphanages. And he'd been running orphanages for decades, which he actually, he designed his orphanages as a republic. The children had their own parliament and newspaper and had decision-making power over their own lives under his care, which is a century ahead of its time as far as yeah, I can tell. Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, and time and time again, both before the invasion and even while living in the ghetto, people are basically like, hey, you're important. Do you want to get out of here? Like, we will get you out. We will go through, even at, at the beginning, it's easy and later it's not easy. You know, people are like, I will risk death to get you out, right? And every single time he's offered safe passage out of Poland by the home army, by others, he refuses. He's not going to leave his children. Uh, when the Nazis came for the 190 or so kids in his care to deport them to Treblinka, which is the death camp that uh, the Warsaw ghetto people had to ended up, a lot of them ended up at, he insisted that he would join his children. He said, you do not leave a sick child in the night and you do not leave children at a time like this. So he gets on the train, he goes to Treblinka, and he's offered once again a stay of execution. And there's two stories about this. One is that a guard recognized him for his children's books that had meant so much to the guard's kids and offered to let him go. Another is that the Nazis knew he was a prominent Jew and they had this like special place that prominent Jews could go stay alive in order to convince the world that they weren't doing a Holocaust. Either way, he refuses and he died so that his children wouldn't have to die alone. Uh, went with them to the gas chambers. Um, <laughs> sorry. It, yeah. To confirm what they suspected, the, the Boone sent a, a blonde Jewish socialist. A, a lot of the people who were smuggling their way in and out of the ghetto were people who could pass as Aryan. And so the Boone sends a blonde Jewish socialist out of, out of Warsaw to trace the railway tracks and confirm, yes, the deportations are going to Treblinka. But that's not enough. They also, this, this Boondist guy, he tracks down a Jew who had escaped the camp who confirmed, yes, this is a death camp. Those deported would not be coming back. So this Boondist, out of land of death, smuggles himself back into, the, into Warsaw, back into the ghetto, crossing battle lines and all this shit, to report what he's seen and heard. And his account was, was printed and distributed immediately. The, you know, it's the confirmation of what they assumed. Earlier, they're like, we know this is an extermination project. But now they like, no, no. 
By September, only 40,000 people out of the original 500,000 people remained in the ghetto. And uh, some of the shit that happens now, I understand why people don't talk about it much. There's a lot of um, uh, only some of you get to die, decide amongst yourselves or get to live, decide amongst yourselves. Yeah. And Bernard Goldstein, he's he's in the ghetto, you know, our, our hero from last time. I haven't been talking about as much this time. He survives as one of the most wanted men in the ghetto, and he's passed back and forth like a hot potato from comrade to comrade, house to house, hiding hole to hiding hole. Like for an hour, he's disguised as a baker, and then they're like, fuck, run, go into this tiny hole, you know, and uh, go into this abandoned house. You once helped my brother who was a part of the boond. I will come feed you, but if you fall asleep, you'll die. Like he he has some fucking time of it, avoiding fucking capture as like he's fucking wanted, you know, and his face is famous. And at one point, he's even actually hidden and protected by a Jewish cop, uh, because at this point, their bootlicking wasn't saving them. There's only 200 left out of the original 2000. Um, So Jewish cops no longer, I believe, at this point, serving their previous function. So this is where during episode one, when I commented that Mm -hmm. uh, Comrade Bernard sucked at not getting arrested, he said he was saving it up. This is and only part of it. <laughs> this is part of it. This man, yeah, uh, the the I can't call him a patron saint, can I? That just wouldn't work. <laughs> um, but if there were a not, if there were a patron saint of not getting arrested, um, he's very good at not getting arrested. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. That's a better way to phrase it. Um, so it was after this, this is the way I wrote it down. It was after this nightmare summer and the orgy of death that accompanied the last week or so of deportation that people in the ghetto really decided, like, we are going to fight. It's no longer the, the radicals. Everyone's like, um, to quote Bernard Goldstein, every one of the 40,000 who remained alive burned with impatience to come to grips with the enemy. They stood at their work in the ghetto factories. They dragged themselves under heavy guard to slave labor on the Aryan side. Every thought, every hope, working in only one direction towards only one goal, a fight to the death. Everyone in the ghetto, whether enrolled in the fighting groups or not, thought only about arms and weapons. And so let's talk about the people who are going to fight. There's three major factions in the uprising. And in the wake of the uprising in the war, everyone fought over who gets to take credit for the resistance. It seems really clear to me that all three groups get to take credit for the resistance. I mean, I have a dog in the fight, right? Like, I like the Boond. I like the anti-Zionist socialists. Um... But it is absolutely one of those moments where you're like, everyone is trying to murder us is more important than political conflict. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you got to put it aside. Yeah. Mostly today we know about the ZOB, the Jewish Combat Organization. And no, the Z in ZOB does not stand for Zionist. It stands for Zidowska, the Polish word for Jewish. We know more about the ZOB because some of its members survived and wrote about what happened. The ZOB uh, was started by the labor Zionists, who were left-wing Zionists, which, as, as far as I've been able to find, is the greater chunk of the Zionist movement before the creation of Israel. And more or less, labor Zionists wanted to create a socialist Israel. But messier than that, they didn't actually necessarily want to create a state of Israel at all. Like some of them didn't. I believe some of them did and some of them didn't, as best I can figure. So the labor Zionists start the ZOB, and they invite their political enemies, the Bund, to join. And the boon doesn't join at first. Uh, I've read two different reasons, and I suspect that the answer is both. Uh, the boon doesn't join because they're politically opposed to supporting Zionists. And this is before 
the deportations that this organization mm. is getting set up. They're politically opposed to supporting Zionists and because they don't want to join because they're they're actually slightly more moderate in their support of direct action and violence, and they don't want to stir up too much shit. Real. Because they're trying to get the home army on their side. That's their strategy. Mm, they're trying to make other allies. Yeah, and I've read some stuff that's fairly subjective that claims that overall, more of the socialists were fighting to win and more of the Zionists were fighting to uh, die on their own terms. I can't promise that, and I'm not trying to make a blanket statement. That's just something I ran across in a couple sources. But those were very subjective sources. Those weren't like the account of the person who was there or something, right? Yeah. Well, and and like you said, people have a lot of uh, uh, motivation to go with one one interpretation or the other in this situation. It's not yep. not super neutral. Yep, totally. And so after the mass deportations, all that shit is forgotten, all the differences, all of the strategy, how do we successfully have a revolt? People are like, we just need to fucking fight. And so the Bund joins the, the ZOB. And after the uprising, the Bund, which has most of its supporters in New York City and the labor Zionists who are strongest in Palestine, spend like the next century or so fighting over whose uprising it is. At the very beginning, the Bundists were, were more known to be involved, but soon after the Zionists learned that it was their guys who actually started the ZOB, uh, whatever, they all fought. Definitely, this is the most important issue. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't care. Um, I mean, I'm it's also like, not... Which groups that weren't there can claim ownership of the actions of other people? Yeah. Like whose history is it? It's, it's Jewish history. You know, um, anyway, so said the non-Jewish person telling the podcast. Um, so that's the ZOB. But then there's there are actually only a little over half the fighters registered in the formal groups. I've seen different spreads. One was like 500 to 250. One was 600 to 400, whatever. I mean, the whole whole fucking ghetto fought. So whatever. Right. That was going to be a question I had is like how many people who fought had no political affiliation beyond uh, not getting murdered by Nazis yeah. or murdering not or you know killing Nazis on your way out. So it's like mostly, I think people are more and more people were joining these fighting organizations, these specific militia formations, um, and were generally joining one of the sort of politically aligned ones because I think the by and large, my understanding is that the political culture in the ghetto was was very like you have your crew, you know, you're working mm -hmm. with these people or these people, and a lot of the mutual aid groups are set up by these various crews. But again, it's like you're talking about a thousand people out of 40,000 people. And at least Bernard is like everyone wanted to fight, you know, um, at this point. So the other half, there's the ZOB, which is made up of these two leftist but very different ideas of what that means groups. The other half is the ZZW, the Jewish Military Union, and they're right wing Jews. And at most of whom at the start had been fighting and uh, serving in the Polish military, a lot of them smuggled themselves into Warsaw to fight because they were otherwise on the front lines. And they were revisionist Zionists, which was the right-wing half of the Zionist movement at the time, which meant that they were territorial maximalists, basically believing Israel should be a state and should be the only state in the area. Sorry, just no, no, making I mean, a, okay. a quiet, disapproving sound. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. and I mean, yeah, fuck, fuck that. Well, and it's like... <laughs> I will make a louder, disapproving sound, fuck that. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh, to oversimplify things dangerously, in 1935, the Zionist executive, the like sort of worldwide Zionist organization, is they refused to say that the goal of Zionism was to create the Jewish state. 
they don't say the goal isn't that, as far as I can tell. But they, they're like, they, there's a specific, someone's like, I propose that the whole point is to create a Jewish state. And they're like, no, that is not the point of, of Zionism. Um, I'm not trying to, this is my best attempt at, at a neutral presentation of these things. I'm really not trying to present a whatever. I don't like the right wing anyway. But okay, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it so, doesn't have to be neutral. I think, yeah, I think yeah. we know where you stand. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so... So that creates the revisionist Zionists. Um, the revisionist Zionists are like, oh, hell no, we want it all. It's ours. And basically the larger chunk of Jewish folks at this time see these people as the Jewish fascists. And mm-hmm. this is why these are two different political organizations. Because as much as like we have bigger enemies than each other, they're still kind of this like, but they're fascists. You know? Right. Um, they're just Jewish fascists. At least that was as was seen. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if if like there was a like an alien invasion or something, and we had to team up with everybody to to fight off the alien invasion, like we would still be like, oh, it's a little gross that I'm fighting alongside of yeah. you know some of the people we'd be fighting alongside of. We probably would still do it right. because you know something bigger was happening. But like, yeah, sometimes you do things and feel gross about it at the same time. And. I mean, honestly, a lot of ways it reminds me of what's happening in Ukraine right now um, about like the fact that there are right wing elements, Nazi elements within the Ukrainian defense side. And there's also far left elements within the Ukrainian defense side. Um, And they are not. That's probably a better example than aliens. The thing that I came up with for some reason. No, no. But I mean, like it, it. And so and they're doing what they do in the ghetto is that they coordinate on some level, but to not, you know, to sort of be in the same fight, even though that they cannot fucking stand each other. Right. But you know what? You can stand. Uh, you can stand the concept of music. You can. I love the concept of I music. I know. I even like actual individual music. Um, not all of it. I like a lot yeah. of it, but not all of it. Uh, Sophie shows me pop music that I like because it's sad pop music. If it's happy pop music, I'm not going to like it. Unless it's from the 80s, uh-huh. in which uh-huh. case it's still in a minor key, even though it's supposedly happy. <laughs> you are so goth. I can't help it. You really are the gothest chick I know. <laughs> Aw, thanks. Um, I'm wearing a bright blue skirt, but you can't see it. <laughs> um, I don't know why you would admit that. I mean, no, I, uh, it's, that's very, it's, a, it's powerful. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad you have that much confidence. No one's around. you remain the most goth chick, <laughs> even though you're wearing blue right now. Thanks. And you know who else will sell you things like products, like skirts, or usually when I listen to ads on this network, it's usually other podcasts, but, you know, it might be some other stuff. It's these ads and sponsors. Hooray! Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. 
Millions of people have made the switch to Nick Sleek Proof Underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine washable, and great looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And we are back, and we are talking about the fact that the far right participated in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, too, and people don't like to talk about it because it's very politically inconvenient. But it makes the story complete and therefore allows you to actually understand what happened and therefore draw conclusions. Um, I mean, it's not complete, right? I'm not telling the complete story. This is the best that I can research, but whatever. So the ZZW has its roots in the military, and they have more connection to the home army, and they receive the lion's share of the guns and the training. But they were actually written out of most of the early histories, and they were written out for two reasons. First, because most people don't want to admit that the right-wing Jews had done a lot too. Poland became communist after World War II, and in particular, they did not want to talk about any right-wingers that did anything good. Not that I, whatever, I don't care. Um, secondly, because almost every single one of them died. Uh, there was only one of their leaders who survived the war, and his memoirs weren't published until the 1960s. And I really hate to say I like a right-wing guy's book title, but the title is And We Are Not Saved, which is just an objectively good book title. That is. It is a good book title. And to make things messier, when they did write themselves into history, finally, they lied. No way! <laughs> the fascists lied? You'd be shocked to know this. There's this guy named David Applebaum, who is supposedly one of their great leaders. He probably never existed. <laughs> like modern, like more recent research is like, yeah, we did a lot of looking into this guy that you all keep talking about. And um, there's no record of him. Uh, no, that's awesome, though. That's so much better than like just making up stories about somebody real is to just like completely invent a cool guy out of whole cloth. I know. It's like, yeah. All right. And so the other thing that they did that they're probably lying about is that there's this whole mythology in it where the ZZW and the Home Army had two matching gold rings with Jewish symbols on them. And the, when the two would meet up to discuss things, the Home Army person, the Polish person, and the and the Jew. This already sounds yeah. fake. I'm just... So they would yeah, they would have their matching rings to show that they were who they said they were. But that's not enough because what if they captured the rings? They also had to describe the meanings of all the different symbols on the ring. And uh, these rings probably never existed. Um, the one remaining, one of these rings is probably a forgery. But... You can tell you're proud of your history when you make it up and forge artifacts Well, what's it. funnier too, though, it wasn't the right-wing Jews who made this up. They, I think they might have made up the David person, but I'm not sure. It was 
wait, who made up the rings? Okay. And was it Tolkien? <laughs> you know, right? No, it's this Polish home army guy named Henryk Owanski, Owanski, who he probably did a bunch of really brave shit in support of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But he like made his fucking name as like, I am the fucking Polish hero of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Wait, so you're saying that it was a Christian who made up the story about the Jewish symbols that you had yeah, to explain the meaning yeah. of? Okay, see, I knew it. I knew it because <laughs> okay. that doesn't that story doesn't work if it's Jews. Yeah. Because unless you have like a predefined, like these are just the passwords you have to recite, uh-huh. it's like, oh, what does this symbol mean? It's like, well, let me tell you what this symbol means. It's like, that's not what this symbol means. It's like, it is what this <laughs> symbol means. And then you have like an arg- a 12-way argument about it. And like that's how you discuss what symbols mean. <laughs> and the idea that like, no, the symbol, it means one thing. That's a Christian <laughs> idea. That is a Christian making up a story about some fake ass Jewish rings. And they completely gave themselves away with the idea that you could just agree on symbols. Yeah, that that tracks. Another thing that he made up was that he he talked about how his own son died in defense of the ghetto under his command. He Never had any sons. Didn't have a son. I knew it. (laughs) Fuck this guy. Everything in history. History is so fucking weird. I like how angry yet happy that made Miriam. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm mad about it, but I was ready to be mad about it. So I'm glad it turned out I was right to be mad about it. Your feelings are valid. (laughs) They're confusing, but valid. (laughs) I'm delighted to be this serious. <laughs> so, after the deportations, people in the ghetto are getting ready to fight. Bernard Goldstein gets himself smuggled out of the ghetto at great expense and difficulty. Some some airport workers, like Jewish workers who have to go to work at the airport every every day, they come and go from the ghetto every day. Or not actually every day. They come back for like one day every two weeks or something like that. And when they're leaving the ghetto again, he's added to one such group. There's a problem. He's old as fuck and, well, he's actually not that old. He's like in his 50s, but he looks old as fuck because he has been having a hard time and he had to grow. Yeah, he's been having a hard time since he was 16. Yeah, and he grew this like huge beard in order to disguise his his famous face. Um, but that is not the look of a young uh, Jewish worker. And he's like sick and I think he's walking with a cane at this point. He'll be walking with a cane shortly thereafter either, either way. So... While he's like walking through, everything's fine, everything's fine. But then they're like, the people who are supposed to meet them are late. And so they're waiting there. And then the Gestapo come up and start checking names. And someone has to come over and bribe the shit out of the Gestapo. And he gets out. Uh, and he moves in with members of the Democratic Underground, like some Polish, a Polish family who would 100% get shot if they were caught hosting him. And there on the outside, uh, people work to get arms into the He's not the only one doing this. but. He's the person whose story I'm I'm tracking, you know. So he gets out, but like out of the ghetto, not out of Correct. Poland. He's he's still there and still yeah. organizing. He gets out to be where he is most useful, um, which it. is acquiring guns and working to build this revolt on the outside. And so this isn't easy to get guns in this current situation. People, both Jewish and Christian, are getting caught with stashes of firearms to smuggle into the ghetto and are getting shot like so, like, they'll, they'll get a bunch of guns together before they can smuggle them over. They all die. And while most of the world is silent to the treatment of Jews, right, and huge swaths of the Polish population was basically like, oh, thank God we hated these Jews too, there was also a ton of support from the Poles. 
the government in exile of Poland actually set up the Council for Aid to Jews, or Zagoda, which is also the name of a badass band from a couple decades ago. And which I didn't know the connection until I read this. I was like, oh, that band was extra cool. <laughs> and uh, almost all the Polish parties are represented on, on this council. And it works to supply Jews with documents and apartments and raise money and get weapons. They're not doing as much as they could, but, you know, they're, they're doing something. The ZOB buys guns everywhere they can. They buy stolen guns from army depots. They buy guns off of German soldiers. They buy guns from... Imagine that. Imagine being a German soldier and someone comes up being like, yo, can I buy that gun? I want to kill your friend. <laughs> but It's like, well, on the one hand, um, I'm not supposed to do that. And I don't particularly want you to shoot my friend. On the other hand, I would like to get drunk tonight. So... Fuck it. Yeah. I assume that's how that I went down. I kind of assume too, even though it sounds fake, you know? They also buy... I know that like making sure soldiers don't sell their guns is like a huge part of like military history. And I this is this is uh -huh. like a, a side note, but in um earlier in earlier military history when like guns had a piece of flint in mm -hmm. them that made them mm -hmm. fire, um a major thing that armies had to do was make sure the soldiers weren't selling the flints. Whoa. Because it's kind of obvious if you sell your gun, but if you just sell the flint, like people buy flint. They need flint. And you're like, um, oh I lost and the And then flint. you just replace it with a sharp no, you just stick a sharp pebble in there and then your gun just wouldn't fire. But what do you give a fuck? You're in a line <laughs> of fifty guys shooting at a line of another fifty guys. It doesn't matter if your gun fires or not. Like, that doesn't affect you as an individual. So that, why the hell wouldn't you sell your flint for booze money? Uh, so they would, like, actually have to go and inspect oh my and God. check uh, everybody's guns. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So they, they buy guns from Poles who work in arms factories. And all the while, people are being arrested by the Nazis. Several prominent socialist Polish and Bundes leaders are executed by the Soviets, of course, which fucks up morale. And and this is when the Soviets are ostensibly enemies with our enemies. I can't say ostensibly. I, I will I will give the Soviet Union credit <laughs> for one thing. Much. Um, you do not under any circumstances have to hand it to yeah. them. But <laughs> but uh, anyway, on January eighteenth, nineteen forty three, the fighting groups go into action for the first time. They were caught off guard. A surprise German invasion and deportation drive into the ghetto, and most of the fighters weren't able to respond in time. Four different units within the different fighting groups fought back. I'm under the impression it was mostly the ZDW, the right wing, but I am not certain about that. They they fought back. They fired on the Nazis. They threw hand grenades and shit. They killed about 20 Nazis. And these actions probably, at least for the day, saved about 3,000 people. Uh, the Germans managed to steal 5,000 people out of the 8,000 that they had planned. And this had other effects. The Nazis were fucking shocked. The, the Polish resistance, Jewish and Gentile, was fucking stoked. The home army immediately smuggles in 50 revolvers, 50 grenades, and some explosives. Again, you could do better, but, you know. Um, morale rises in the ghetto. German soldiers stop feeling safe to walk around the ghetto alone. And the fighters immediately, they're like, okay, this place is ours now. They turn their ire on the Gestapo informants who were tracked down and shot. One was even shot outside the ghetto. He had like, he gets shot in the ghetto, but he manages to get out, right? And then he's like walking out of a restaurant outside the ghetto in Warsaw. And someone, uh, no one knows who, walks up and shoots him. Uh, I have a theory. <laughs> that theory is named Bernard <laughs> with a gun in his cane. I have no evidence to support this theory. It would theory. have to be. 
But uh, I believe you. Yeah. Because <laughs> he writes about him like, oh, I got shot. It's a very passive voice. <laughs> but I, I think he probably would have been like, yo, I fucking shot that guy. I don't know. I don't know. He just, yeah, I... I mean, maybe he just was trying not to brag. You know, yeah. he's like working on his autobiography and he's like, well, if I tell them everything I did, it's going to sound a little braggy. Yeah. So we'll just say that this guy was shot. Yeah. He actually really does play down his own like work. It like doesn't his bi- autobiography doesn't even talk much about the work he did. It talks about what he saw and what he survived and like what happened. And, you know, his own, like, escapes and shit like that. But even most of the cool biographical stuff was biographical sketches that other people wrote in the introduction to this book. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, he's humble. That's why he didn't tell you that he yeah, shot Yeah, exactly. Guy. Exactly. Now we all have learned. Classic comrade Bernard. I know. Oh, Bernie. Uh, so the, the Juden rot was now completely ignored by the residents of the ghetto. They're like, you're not in charge. The, the fighting groups are in charge. And everyone looks to the underground organizations for leadership. Some houses are turned into barracks. They're full of fighters on guard 24-7, so they're not going to get caught off guard like last time. Thousands of liters of benzene are smuggled into the ghetto, and an entire factory like is created like or shifts production to making explosive bottles, which are like super fancy Molotovs with detonators. And later, like 20 years later, someone unearths this factory and finds 100,000 explosive detonators that they had made. <sighs> Holy um, shit. And their explosives expert was an Aryan-passing Jewish Bundist chemical engineer named Michael Klepfish, who had been on a train to Treblinka and had pulled the bars out of the window of the train and escaped and smuggled himself back into Warsaw, first to the outside working on the outside and then back into the ghetto to be at. This guy did not pick safety, you know? Right. And as, as quoted by, by Bernard, uh, he was alive pretty much for it. Okay, this is not the start of the quote, but he was alive pretty much for the desire of revenge. Quote, my father and mother have already been burned. My sister is buried in a Christian cemetery. My child is in a foundling home. My wife is a servant in a Gentile home. All I want now is to be consumed in the battle for vengeance. And I think that kind of sums up the attitude in the ghetto at this point, especially of the people who are like literally going yeah. into it, you know? Yeah, to, to go into the ghetto at yeah. that point. Well, okay, I'll get to that. Tens of thousands of people spend months building bunkers overseen by Jewish engineers. Like, you know, because there's engineers there because there's every people of all walks of life there. Some bunkers were double walled safe rooms hidden behind wardrobes. Or you might have to like crawl through an oven past all the pots and pans to reach into the, the bunker. Some were cellars built underneath cellars. Tunnels were built between courtyards, friend of the pod tunnels, passages between attics, Tunnels were dug out to the Aryan side or into the sewer city system, which weren't like the big happy tunnels. Like a lot of the media talks about how they get out through sewers at the end. And there's two things I think that are worth noting about that. One is that these sewers are not like big, happy, like um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle things where you can like walk around and the sewage is like a little trickle at the bottom. Thank you. I was going to like reaching for a a reference for what sewers look like. I was going to say the third man, but I think the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is probably uh, a more <laughs> like people actually know what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the third man. Oh, it rules. It's a great movie. Cool. There's sewers. For for big happy old sewers. Nerds. Yeah. Yeah, there's huge sewers. Yeah. Like really spacious sewers in that movie. Yeah. Not in Warsaw, or at least the parts that they have to escape through. Um, they're like twenty-eight inches tall. 
the pipes that they're crawling through and like an awful lot of people like uncountable people died uh, lost crawling through shit um and also the other thing worth knowing is that it wasn't just like oh pop open the manhole they did this they they dug the tunnels to the sewers they 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 were the people who saved themselves you know yeah and as for the the question of like why didn't everyone just smuggle themselves out of the ghetto at this point since there's some ways to get out sort of during this period many Jews heading outside the ghetto actually smuggled themselves back into the ghetto not just to get into the fight although a lot of people did that but because life outside the ghetto meant hiding and being blackmailed and the life expectancy was like not fucking good yeah there's there was no fucking safety for Jews in Poland and also here, it's like we're talking about these people who built bunkers and the people who hid themselves, not just the people who fought, are like fucking heroes. And um, I don't know, all that shit, right? I guess I've, I've hit this point numerous times, but. Yeah, but, you know, it it, it bears repeating that, like, there are, are multiple yeah. ways to resist. Yeah. So the Germans know what's happening. They know that they've lost control of the ghetto. And they're like, so they switch strategies and they try to play nice. They're like. Hey, come on out of the ghetto. We'll take you somewhere nice. It's totally not a death camp this time. It's like, we learned our lesson. No more death camps. Uh, come to work for us. And everyone ignored them. This time, they... Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. When, when Germans tried to move the factories out of the ghetto, the workers set everything on fire. Uh, uh, fucking good strategy. <laughs> fire solves a lot of problems sometimes. Yeah. Both sides use it very effectively. But... Uh, and so the Germans back off and they wait, preparing for a single great confrontation. The people in the ghetto, they are waiting for the exact same thing. 2 a.m. on April 19th, Sunday, Nazis and Polish Nazi collaborators, which is to say Nazis and other Nazis, surround the entire ghetto outside the wall. And it's the first day of Passover. Miriam, what's Passover about? Uh, Passover is about uh, resistance to oppression. Cool. and you know and some other stuff and a giant frog yeah yeah we'll talk about the frog later yeah. yeah so at 5 a.m the gates are barred at six o'clock the nazis move in armored cars machine guns tanks the whole fucking deal resistors wait until the front of the column has gone past and then they just open fire from the buildings they rain down fire and bullets germans died jews didn't some Nazis burned to death in their tanks, and the German army retreats from the ghetto. April 20th, Hitler's birthday, the Nazis cut off electricity and water. They then invade the ghetto again. This time, they take it more seriously. They don't march in in a column. They send in squads moving undercover, firing into every window and alley, basically like how you should take a city. And they're met with dynamite, Molotovs, and hand grenades as they do this. At one point... 300 Nazis get exploded from a landmine buried under the street. Wow. There's a decent, I, yeah, there's a lot of different death counts. Everyone has real different death counts. I don't, I'm not even going to offer a death count. Um, but the Nazis set fire to buildings. Fighters run from building to building from the passages they'd carefully built over the courses of months. So they set fire to a building, you just run into the next one. The fighting moves inside, floor to floor, room to room. Uh, Michael Klepfish, the explosives engineer who built that factory and smuggled himself back in the ghetto, he uh, he throws himself at a German machine gun to cover the retreat of the unit that he led and dies. And even those who hadn't enrolled formally in the fighting organizations join the fight, whether as couriers or fighters, 
fighters disguised themselves in stolen Nazi uniforms to ambush the enemy. Nazis were terrified the resistance would spread to the Polish population, and they evacuate everyone who's close enough to see the fighting, like anyone who can see into the ghetto from their buildings get evacuated. But the rest of Warsaw wouldn't resist until about a year later in a fight that we won't get into much now, which, of course, the Jews also fought in. Even though during the ghetto uprising, the Bund calls for sympathy strikes from the non-Jewish Poles, even the generally reliable socialists, and nothing happens, met with silence. Artillery rained down onto the ghetto, huge swaths of it burned while people hid in bunkers or fled through tunnels, and the fighting lasted for weeks. On May 1st, May Day, the ghetto fighters undertook a one-day offensive. Offensive gets put in quotes um, in in Bernard's retelling of this because they're defeated, right? Um, But they're holding on, and they're like, fuck it. Let's, let's go on the off, uh, let's go on the offense. It's May Day. And, uh, you know, it doesn't go well, but it was worth doing. And that evening, to quote Bernard again, they, quote, held a roll call of their decimated ranks and sang the Internationale. Polish socialist sewer workers, together with professional smugglers, they helped map a way out through the sewers. Some fighters actually finally did escape. They spent two days in 28-inch tunnels with water up to their lips. The Polish underground was supposed to meet them to guard their exit, but the Home Army never showed. So these emaciated fighters are covered in shit, and they hold submachine guns to hold back the crowd as they evacuated themselves out to the forest and there to continue the fight. And over the next while, the ghetto was entirely destroyed. Polish volunteers did demolition work in exchange for the right to steal valuables, and in the end, the whole place was razed like three stories down below the ground. Bernard Goldstein didn't fight in the uprising. He worked outside in the Aryan area and was racked with guilt. He got weapons and helped plan things, but he also just tried to help him, just tried to survive. And he was driven from home to home, wandering the streets homeless, trying to organize to help 20,000 or so Jews who were scattered around the area and hiding in the city and countryside after the, after the ghetto was destroyed. The Bund itself was responsible for about 3,000 of these people finding them documentation and shelter and food and all of that. And I suspect that the 3,000 people that he helped support were glad that Bernard did what he did best, which was organize and network instead of fighting and dying in the uprising. Um, Yeah. So they stayed hidden as best as they could. They organized as best as they could, which was fucking hard for them to do the organizing. It was incredibly risky. They'd have people over to their very secret apartments that were like, you know, hidden even from the four-year-old in the room next door and shit, you know? Right. I mean, these they are not supposed to be like in the country at all at this point. Yeah. Much less, much less trying to organize. Yeah. And they're still trying to fucking do it. And they organize the best they can for a year until as the allies draw near and the Soviets bomb the city, which is not inherently bad, but the Poles get to go hide in shelters, right? And they're like cheering. They're like, fuck yeah, the Soviets are bombing our city, but they're glad and for good reasons. Um, but the Jews can't, right? They can't leave their hiding places to go hide in shelters. And the Polish underground prepared to rise up and retake Warsaw. The Jews couldn't really aid in the planning. Um, they couldn't show their faces until August 1st, 1944, when Warsaw rose up, uh, which is also cool. People did cool stuff. Kicking out the Nazis out of your city is fucking cool. Always. Yeah. The Jews came out from hiding and women and men joined in the fight, uh, even though they were often treated like shit by the people that they were fighting on the same side as. 
Uh, but one cool thing about the Warsaw Rising uprising, not the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, but this one in 1944, is that Girl Scout troops threw Molotovs at tanks. God, that fucking rules. Yeah. Um, you can see interviews with the Girl Scout leader who's like, oh, yeah, that's what we did. It's a perfect Girl Scout activity. You got like the crafting at the beginning. I know. Then you've got the like athletic, like competitive portion with the throwing. There's like at least two merit badges right there. I, I think so. <laughs> I like that we worked in a merit badge reference into this episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> it's teamwork. It's it's lovely. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so the, the Soviet Union takes control of Poland. And once again, Comrade Bernard has a death sentence from the communists put on his head. <laughs> He's just collecting them at this he point. He is. And because he was part of a socialist group that wasn't Bolshevik. So that's that's a that's a oh, killing if I ever heard one. Yeah. He made up his mind to flee to the U.S. Before he left, he went to visit the remains of the ghetto one last time. And he describes the experience. I'm going to quote it. My entire life had been part of the lively rushing stream that had poured through these streets and alleys. I had known every corner, every house, every cobblestone. Now all was dust. I could not even tell where the streets had been. One patch of rubble was exactly like the next. I felt a deep and bitter sorrow. The blue sky and bright spring day mocked me. I felt the lonely emptiness of a disembodied spirit who wanders aimlessly over the deserted ruins after the cataclysm. Who had cheated the Nazis? Those who rotted beneath broken stones or were ashes in some charnel pit? Or I, sentenced to live out my days and nights with the tortured memories of what had been? This was the end. This was the sum total of hundreds of generations of living and building, of religion, of Torah, of piety, of free thinking, of Zionism, of Bundism, of struggles and battles, of the hopes of an entire people. This, this empty desert. I looked around me at what had been the Jews of Warsaw. I felt one hope and I feel it now. May this sea of emptiness bubble and boil. May it cry out eternal condemnation of the murderers and pillagers. May it forever be the shame of the civilized world which saw and heard and chose to remain silent. With the help of a... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just... I was doing real real good on the not crying thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before... Um, Dear listener, before Miriam and I decided to do this podcast episode together, it was a little bit, not totally collaborative, it was a little bit more collaborative than a lot of our episodes. And we talked about what it would mean to do an episode where um, the tone might might take some shifts from uh, the usual slightly more upbeat. So with the help of a sympathetic Soviet officer and a Jewish American officer, oh, there's a, there's a Soviet we could be sympathetic to, right? There you go. Yeah. Uh, so now, we so did now it. any any tankies listening can't complain. Yeah, exactly. Be like the one good one and help the people that have a death sentence escape. Yeah, there you go. Easy roadmap. Easy roadmap to us liking. Yeah. So, state communism. Yeah, state communist. <laughs> state <laughs> okay. communist. Yeah, let's be real. And a Jewish American officer. The two of them, not together, but at different times in his journey. They help Comrade Bernard smuggle himself one last time, this time to the U.S., where he wrote his memoir. And that's pretty much where we're going to leave it today. Originally, this episode was going to be more broadly about Jewish partisans and Jewish resistance to the Nazis in general. But um, I think I'll have to do more about that later. Uh, like the Bielski partisans, which is a group of more than a thousand people who lived in the forest in Poland, or the other ghetto uprisings. There was like a hundred of them. 
though Warsaw was the largest. Some were even led by survivors from the combat units in Warsaw. They would like go to other towns and basically be like, yeah, this is what we did. I got some guns, you know? And a decent number of the fighters escaped each uprising off into the forest to continue the fight. And it's still accidentally privileging armed resistance too, right? Because uh, before they really know what was going on, resistance meant teaching children so that after the war they could reenter society educated. Or uh, once was clear what was happening, archivists, who really I want to learn more about, buried everything that they could so that culture would survive. And for decades, people were unburying these um, time capsules of Jewish history and culture that... uh, was as important as anything else that anyone has ever done in the history of the fucking planet. Uh, it's really hard to like not privilege uh, certain types of resistance um, narratively, just because some forms of resistance fit narrative forms and like better than others and like make for cool and exciting stories. Yeah. But, you know, like we keep saying that that doesn't make them the only valid forms of resistance or or even the most valid forms of resistance, just the ones that it's kind of easiest to talk about. Yeah. Although, I don't know if easy to talk about is like <laughs> necessarily something that I would apply to this topic. But um, yeah. 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 And, and you know, in the again, like I, I, I told most of the story from the position of this particular character and and this particular political orientation, which isn't actually my political orientation. When I say it's the one I'm most sympathetic to, it's like, you know, um, but but I think one of my main takeaways uh, researching all of this was really how, um, how much anti-fascism crosses uh, political lines or should, you know. Um, you can't let people do shit like this. Whatever... Whatever you think, like, society should look like, I got one answer, which is not that. That is not what society should look like. Yeah. And, like, so so, stop it. <laughs> Listener, stop it. Make that not happen. Yeah, I mean, if there is to be one takeaway, it, it does seem like it should be um, resist fascism early and often yeah and through and go ahead sorry whatever yeah and with with whatever and whoever will will stand with you yeah and then watch your back if you win because state communists will come after you (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, uh, history teaches us that uh, and the other thing in history is like really like you know i spent a lot of my time talking shit on uh bunker mentality and preparation you know like preparedness culture people like want to get their like bunker full of guns and hole up and like fight their neighbors or whatever fucking nonsense yeah and i spent fill a, fill a bunker with mres and yeah and guns i'll be real like reading about world war ii i'm like man you know what everyone should do build safe places to hide people like it's never a bad thing to have yeah it's just think of it as your bonus closet you know or bonus room. Yeah, you can like you can store stuff in there, and then if at any point um, people need to hide there, it's there. And like very important, don't talk about it. Yep, that's why I'm not planning know, on doing it. But yeah, I'm not. I I live in a rental. Like yeah. what am I going to do? <laughs> but um, uh, you know, uh, 
we live in a culture that is is very excited about having people talk about anything they do that could be construed remotely as a form of activism or uh, praiseworthy in any way. You gotta what, like if you don't tell people about it, does it count? And like this is something where if you tell people about it, it doesn't count. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> secret or yeah does not count. Yep. Which, by the way, goes for any other laws you might be thinking of uh, breaking in the future. Um, no need to talk publicly about how you feel about whether you would help somebody to break a law related to their health care, for example. And you're not fooling anybody by talking about camping trips. That's not super relevant, but this feels like something I should say. <laughs> It is always better to be a secret badass where you know you're a secret badass. Absolutely. And you know what's you know what doesn't help when uh when fighting down when fight when facing down fascism? Clout. Ah. Okay. Your clout will not save you. <laughs> Except as a counterpoint. That's what Bernard used. But I guess it's Okay, but that wasn't clout. That's organizing. That, was, that, was, that is Organizing and, uh, is even better than plus safe houses. 50 to charisma. Yeah. <laughs> Organizing is even more important than anything else you can do. And that you can do publicly, at least some aspects of it, and should do publicly because people should know that yeah. becoming organized is a possibility. Uh, and before you ask, I don't immediately know, have any solutions for people because I'm a podcaster, not an organizer, because I quit organizing. Because anyway, uh, so that's our episode. <laughs> any any plugs at the end here, Miriam? Um, well, not not for me personally because I don't really want to talk to anyone or have them talk to me. But I would like it if people would find the IFAC Fund on Twitter. That's at i f a k f u n d. Um, and what the IFAC Fund does is they take your money and they turn it into individual first aid kits and they put those into people's hands uh, so that people can help each other when people need help. Mutual aid. They have a cash app you can donate to, which is, I believe, dollar sign IFAC fund. I don't know how cash app works. I'm not on cash app. But yeah, give them some money. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, organize effectively and within your community and other like-minded people. Yay. I mean, this is a history podcast. It has nothing to do about the present. Yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously. H historically, it is good when people organize yeah. within their communities mm -hmm. and with like-minded mm -hmm. people. Yep. Sophie, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I mean, I guess you could find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you could probably find me. Okay. Margaret, you got any books coming out? Why, yes, I do. It's available for pre-order <laughs> now. It's called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. And if you pre-order it from AK Press Boxcar Books, which is literally a bookstore in a boxcar in rural Maine, uh, Red Emma's, which is named after friend of the pod, Emma Goldman, uh, or Firestorm Cafe in Asheville, you will get a free art print with your pre-order because pre-orders are cool. And pre-orders are the cool. Yeah, because like yeah. the algorithm it runs the world. It the algorithm. Mm -hmm. It's Algorithms. incredibly frustrating, but does trick mm -hmm. the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry, Sophie, if I stole your line prompting Margaret to talk about the books. I'm excited about the book is all. It's just nice that I don't have to ask. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll always, I'll always talk about Margaret's books. Margaret writes great books. Hey, if you all have books. Oh, listen, Margaret has written a bunch of books that you should read. And a few of them off the top of my head are A Country of Ghosts. Uh, the Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, and The Barrow Will Send What It May. Just go go buy those books. They're, they're All three of them are short. You could probably read all three of them in one day if you, like, didn't have a lot of other stuff going on. That's probably true. They're fantastic. Thanks. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.